the United States and Israel say they are united in a common objective when it comes to Iran, but are divided in the strategy to achieve the goal that they want. Each says they want to deny Iran the ability to gain a nuclear weapon. But how do you achieve this? This disagreement burst into the open when Iran and a group of countries reached the Iran nuclear deal of 2015. This agreement has returned in 2021, but without the public rancor between the U.S. and Israel of that time. Yet, the policy gap remains. Is a reaffirmation of the past agreement of 2015 a first step towards a longer and stronger deal that President Biden repeatedly says he wants? Or is it a Middle East mirage? Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we're exploring a series of policy dilemmas of Israel's history and its present. Tough calls that require courageous leadership and creative thinking. My name is David Murkowski, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and the Director of the Koret Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute. And I'm excited to go on this journey, examining Israel's toughest policy decisions with you. Iran is a country that has troubled the U.S. for decades, since Ayatollah Khomeini has led the Iranian Islamic Revolution in the late 1970s. From holding Americans hostage to supporting militant groups in the Middle East seeking to oust pro-American partners, Iran has declared itself to be America's enemy. This has made America very wary when Iran pursued its nuclear program. The U.S. spearheaded international economic sanctions to curb the Iranian program. However, it also thought a back-channel diplomacy track should be tried as well. This led to open negotiations culminating with Iran's nuclear pact of 2015. In July 2015, Iran and what is known as the P5, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, plus one, so the permanent members, China, France, Russia and the United Kingdom, in the U.S., of course, plus one, Germany. They agreed together on a joint comprehensive plan of action, JCPOA. Iran agreed to international oversight of its nuclear program in exchange for a reduction on foreign sanctions. Among its signatories, the JCPOA was met with praise as a robust agreement that would help prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons, at least for a period of time. Proponents of the agreement focused on the fact that during its 10-year duration, the deal would prevent Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. The broader hope was that by lifting sanctions and cooperating with the international community, Iran would see the benefits of being part of the international system and would forego a nuclear weapons program. The implementation of the JCPOA was a major wedge, however, between the U.S. and Israel. We've seen the results. Under the nuclear deal that we, our allies and partners, reached with Iran last year, Iran will not get its hands on a nuclear bomb. The region, the United States, and the world will be more secure. Prominent Knesset members from across the political spectrum condemned the agreement. Opponents of the agreement focused on clauses that expire in 2025 to 2030, called sunset clauses. 
After that date, if no further follow-on agreement is reached, Iran would no longer have to limit its enrichment of uranium. Enriched uranium is the critical nuclear fuel needed for a bomb. It is one thing that the international community can measure in the drive for a bomb. Israel felt the sunset clause, the restrictions on uranium enrichment, was too brief. And indeed, in the 20 to 25 to 2030 period, Iran would have the stamp of approval to enrich after that time, as much as it wants. And this meant, ultimately, unlimited bombs. Benjamin Netanyahu's public opposition to the JCPOA was a major source of contention among the Obama administration in dealing with Israel. Netanyahu's rhetoric came to a head when he addressed Congress in March 2015. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and distinct honor of presenting to you the Prime Minister of Israel, His Excellency Benjamin Netanyahu. My friends, I've come here today because as Prime Minister of Israel, I feel a profound obligation to speak to you about an issue that could well threaten the survival of my country and the future of my people. Iran's quest for nuclear weapons. Some in Israel applauded Netanyahu's congressional speech as speaking truth to power, and others questioned its methods, believing the message should have been handled privately to avoid a rift with Democrats and thus weakening the bipartisan support that has been the bedrock of U.S.-Israel relations for decades. In 2018, President Trump pulled the United States out of the JCPOA, the U.S. imposed the program of massive sanctions on Iran in an attempt to ensure compliance outside the agreement. Iran began openly violating aspects of the agreement in 2019. The European Union attempted to maintain the JCPOA without the United States, however, with very limited success. On January 3, 2020, the United States assassinated Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Al-Quds Force, the Iranian Revolutionaries Guard Corps' covert foreign wing. Two days later, President Rouhani of Iran announced that Iran would no longer adhere to the JCPOA's restrictions on producing enriched uranium, a critical step in the creation of a nuclear weapon. By the time that President Biden entered the White House in January 2021, Iran had instituted a plan for enriching uranium to 20% and even started talking about 60%, and completed its construction of a new generation of centrifuges. Those are machines used to enrich uranium. The U.S. sanctions had failed in this regard to produce its desired effects. Now the Biden administration is alarmed by Iran's accumulating enough enriched uranium for two bombs, way above the ceiling of the 2015 deal. Iran has justified the move by saying the U.S. abrogated the deal. President Biden says the U.S. is striving to negotiate an agreement to lift U.S. sanctions in exchange for Iranian compliance with requirements for its nuclear program. This is known as the Vienna Talks. The Biden team wants this agreement to be, quote, longer and stronger and wants to address sunset clauses, but believes you can't solve all the problems at once. First, 
Iran needs to get rid of the two bombs worth of uranium and come into compliance with the 2015 deal. This has become known as compliance for compliance. Iran gets rid of the uranium and the U.S. will lead the effort to lift the sanctions of the Trump era and rejoin the 2015 deal. However, Israel adamantly believes if the sanctions are lifted now, there's no incentive for Iran to engage in a longer and stronger deal, a kind of JCPOA 2.0. Israel's assertion, if Iran gets what it wants on the front end, America loses its leverage to obtain the needed follow-on agreement that is longer and stronger. So who's right? What if there is no follow-on deal? What are the implications? To discuss these questions, I'm excited to be joined by three esteemed experts, Dennis Ross, Ariel Elilevita, and Ray Take. Ambassador Dennis Ross is counselor and William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. For more than 12 years, Ambassador Ross played a leading role in shaping U.S. involvement in the Middle East peace process and the region at large, and I'm pleased to consider Dennis a close friend and colleague when we've written two books together. Ray Take is the Hasib Sabah Senior Fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR. He is the author of the recently published book, The Last Shah, America, Iran, and the Fall of the Pahlavi Dynasty. I've read the book and I urge you to read it. Ariel Eli Levita is a non-resident fellow in Nuclear Policy Program and Cyber Policy Initiative at the Carnegie Endowment. Prior to joining the Carnegie Endowment in 2008, Levita was the Principal Deputy Director General for Policy at the Israeli Atomic Energy Commission from 2002 to 2007. It's a delight to have all three of you with me today. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm grateful to, uh, to having three people who've really studied Iran for much of their professional lives. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. We're looking forward to the discussion. Thanks for having us. Wait till we get the bill. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. As we record this, it's unclear if despite the efforts of the Biden administration and Iran, the two sides are able to reaffirm the 2015 nuclear deal known as JCPOA. However, both Biden and Blinken have each repeatedly called for a longer and stronger deal, a metaphor for a follow-on agreement between Iran and the United States. So, Dennis, maybe I'll start with you. What does the U.S. mean by the term longer and stronger? Uh, and is this realistic? Well, I think the... The administration means a couple of things by it. Number one, all the sunset provisions within the JCPOA, at least the ones that deal with the limitations uh, on the size of the and character of the enrichment capabilities and program, those lapse in the year 2030. So the first thing when they refer to longer is how can you stretch out those sunset provisions so that Iran is not in a position where there it no longer has limitations on the size, the character, the quality uh, of its, in, in, its nuclear industrial infrastructure. So that's number one. I think number two, it talks about issues that are in some ways outside the JCPOA, but probably shouldn't be, for example, ballistic missiles. 
if you're concerned about Iran having nuclear weapons, you should also be concerned about the delivery vehicles. Whether they're also referring to longer and stronger in, to affect Iran's behavior in the region, they talk about Iran's behavior in the region, whether they mean to try to broaden the scope of the JCPOA so it's not just encompassing the nuclear program and the ballistic missiles, but also Iran's other behavior, the way they've talked about it, that's what it seems to imply. Although I've also heard them say other things where they're talking about what they see are weaknesses uh, or some of the flaws uh, in the additional JCPOA. Uh, and they're trying, in a sense, to correct those flaws. That's fundamentally what they mean by longer and stronger. Okay. Um, so let me ask you, um, Eli Levita, does this, does this longer and stronger, is this real in your mind or not? I don't think that it's real, and I actually have a much more sinister interpretation of the administration's intention there. I think what they're trying to say by talking about longer and stronger is don't uphold us to any stronger requirements now because there will be a bigger, a better agreement down the road, which there isn't going to be, but don't criticize now. So I don't think that there is going to be a follow-up agreement which would look anything like uh, the ones that uh, I think uh, President Biden and, and Secretary of State Blinken actually wish to have, but it's extraordinarily unlikely the U.S. does not have the leverage to get one, neither in terms of the penalty that it could um, impose on Iran if it doesn't deliver, nor in the incentives that it can offer Iran, uh, reward Iran, that Iran of a nature that Iran would, would be uh, interested in and that Congress would go along with. And I would add one more thing which is uh, for the Iranians, there are a lot of things that are already beginning to lapse in terms of their JCPOA obligations. And so for them, there is every, every incentive on earth to um, uh, run the clock, which they have been doing. So the arms transfer um, uh, obligations have already elapsed. R&D obligations on centrifuges elapsed in two years from the original signature. So I don't see a future agreement. Uh, that is anywhere near the one that anyone would wish to see. Do you think Biden, Blinken are sincere in wanting this longer and stronger, or you think that, that they're not? I think they're sincere in wanting one, but I don't think that they're willing to pay the price politically, operationally, strategically to get one. And I think the, the worst part of it, the Iranians know it, and they're far better negotiators in the United States, and they have much more at stake. What would be that price, in your view, to get to a longer and stronger, let's call it JCPOA 2.0? Well, first of all, the question is whether the U.S. was willing to sustain the pressure and in extremists uh, uh, even resort to military action. I think the last thing on earth the U.S. would like to do is have military actors engage in military action against Iran. I think the U.S. feels that the, the sanctions that it has imposed are not delivering already, uh, and Iran is moving forward. And as a result, and furthermore, I think that in terms of removing all sanctions on Iranian behavior, which uh, would not be warranted given the other uh, disturbing things about Iranian behavior, the, um, the U.S. cannot deliver on that one as well, because Congress won't go along, even if the administration was naive enough to suggest as much. Ray, you, you've followed the Iranian regime for, you know, your whole professional life. You've written books uh, on this. Um, as you understand Ayatollah Khamenei, 
he's to me on the outside it looks like he's focused on three baskets of sanctions you know he wants to make no restrictions on his oil he wants access to iranian frozen bank accounts the access to the international financial system uh, so he can engage in expanded commerce but if he gets this all as part of jcpoa 1.0 reaffirmation of the 2015 deal what is his incentive for to, to go for a 2.0? I do think that the, that the political topography has changed since 2015. This is no longer about trying to regenerate European commerce, trying to get UBS to come back to Iran. The, uh, I was actually asking for three things. Access to the international financial networks, and ability to launch to repatriate oil that is selling, the profits of oil that is selling. Uh, this is a country that's turning to an Eastern orientation that has been talked about for a long time. And I think at some level, there's a new economic philosophy pervading in the country that actually negates sanctions as an effective leverage at all. How do you sanction a country that stipulates a willingness to become impoverished? The, the argument about the sanctions seems to be frozen in 2015. What the Iranians want to do, they have an economic theory, which I think is completely impossible, namely through domestic markets, regional markets, and some uh, commercial transactions and trade relationship with Eastern Bloc countries. They can have sufficient degree of economic vitality, and if that leads to a measure of national poverty, then that leads to a measure of national poverty. Uh, and those are plausible aspects of this agreement. Shouldn't be reentered. So I do think we need to start rethinking economic sanctions as an effective means of getting them arms control agreement. I do think economic sanctions can be an effective way of weakening the regime and possibly uh, contemplating its collapse. It is my judgment that Islamic Republic will not break, will break, but it will not bend. Uh, in terms of uh, renegotiating the agreement. I cannot think of a single constituency in Iran that favors renegotiating the JCPOA, nor do I think the logic of their case is misplaced. There is nothing in the JCPOA to suggest it is an interim agreement, not a sentence. So I don't, there is no, in my opinion, uh, it, it is my judgment, just my opinion, uh, that this agreement will not be renegotiated. I can see a process by which there'll be discussion of renegotiations, but that process is likely to be stalemate. Dennis, you're hearing the skepticism here from Ellie and Ray. If the U.S. does yield on these sanctions, what leverage does the U.S. have to get to a 2.0 and to make this a more realistic kind of option than some of the skeptics believe is possible? Look, I think the way one has to think, you have to contemplate leverage is the following. It's not leverage that we think is leverage, it's leverage that the Iranians would be impressed by. Now, the, the problem at this point is, as Ray said, they figured they did a deal and they'll go back to that deal, although their approach to that deal is what I call more for less. We give them more in terms of sanctions relief than was required under the JCPOA, and they give us less in terms of what they were supposed to do because they they're, they've already crossed certain thresholds that they weren't permitted to cross uh, until 2020 and then 2025. So 
the first thing you have to, to recognize is where they're coming from, what they're prepared to do, and, and what is the pressure that would matter to them. Now, the economic side, I think, look, I, they want sanctions relief. That's pretty clear. They want sanctions relief. Will they do, and what you're asking is, how can they be moved to do more? I'll tell you what I think it would take to move them, but this gets at an issue that Ellie was raising. What I'm about to raise, Ellie will say, no one will believe. But I'm suggesting the you can't simply approach this from an economic pressure standpoint. The Iranians have to know they have an awful lot that they could lose. If the administration's public position was the following, we believe in resolving this uh, through diplomacy, but we are not going to permit Iran to become a threshold nuclear weapon state. So uh, we'll engage in good faith negotiations, but we're not going to do it in an, in, a time, in an unlimited fashion, meaning we'll pick a two-year time period. We'll let everybody know now. We'll, do, we'll convey this privately, uh, and then we'll say it publicly. There's a two-year two clock. Now, if we, can't, if we can't reach an agreement in that time, uh, it's not just that we'll, put, we'll apply again the economic sanctions, the snapback function. It is that we will be prepared to do whatever it takes, to use whatever means are necessary to ensure that Iran can't become a threshold nuclear weapon state. And if the Iranians aren't prepared to agree to this or resolve this through a diplomatic process, then they have to understand that they run the risk of losing their entire nuclear infrastructure. That needs to be, in my mind, a critical element of this. You want to, want to put pressure on the Iranians in a way that is likely to have an impact on them. If I had my absolute druthers, I would say, don't go back into the JCPOA. Make clear that you're ready to do an agreement, but you're not prepared to give up the current leverage you have, and you're still prepared, as I said, to make it very clear, at the end of the day, they're not going to become a threshold nuclear weapon state, and we'll take whatever means are necessary to ensure that. Ray, uh, and then I'll get to Ellie, but Ray, do you, knowing Iranian domestic politics and their reading of the United States, do they believe the U.S. would take military steps to prevent them from being a military power, a nuclear power if everything else fails as a last resort? Do they believe America has that stomach? I'm not sure what the definition of a threshold nuclear state is. Today, Iran is enriching uranium up to 60%. Anything above 20% can be used for a weapon. Uh, the weapon that is 60% enriched uranium produces is likely to be bulky, bolting, and imprecise. The South African bomb was 80%, and the American bomb over Hiroshima was 85 So, IAEA owns guidelines said past 20%, you have weapons-grade uranium or enriched uranium can potentially be used as a weapon. If that's the threshold head state, they are in the threshold head state position. I am actually quite prepared to introduce into the Washington lexicon a phrase that nobody wants to use. I don't know. And do the Iranians take the American military threats seriously? I can only say to you from their public discussions and what they say publicly, to their audiences and in their own competitive press. They do not. I am not part of their private council when the Supreme National Security Council meets and how they adjudicate and deliberate that. If I was there, I wouldn't take it seriously. 
what Dennis is suggesting is giving a deadline and suggesting that you will take military measures upon expiration of that deadline. If that strategy is accepted, then at the end of that deadline, you get better prepared to use military force. The worst thing you can do is establish a deterrent posture that then you renegotiate. If I was in the United States government, and if Dennis was in the United States government, I'm not sure either one of us would do that. <laughs> establish a deadline by which you will be held accountable to go to war in the Middle East in the year, in Dennis's estimation, would be the election year of 2023. So <laughs> this issue is going to be resolved not only in terms of the physics of this, not in terms of what threshold state means, because you can make the case that Iran is a threshold nuclear state, but in the domestic political context in both countries. For those who believe that the Iranian regime is vulnerable to internal decomposition, as I do, you have to take the experience of the past four years with some degree of seriousness. This is a country that has proven more resilient than perhaps we anticipated. It has withstood withering economic pressure, targeted assassinations, and a pandemic that it mismanaged. You have to accept the fact that it has some residual strength. That doesn't mean you change your objectives or you alter your strategies, but you have to recognize the nature of your adversary and the residual power that had adversaries husband. David, can I just make one comment before you go off, Ellie? Sure. First of all, there's a lot of steps before you do all-out kinetic force. When you say we'll use all means to ensure they don't become a threshold state, we can get into a definition, discussion of what threshold definition is. One other thing I would do, though, to, to deal with the fact that the Iranians might not believe what we say is I would... I would provide the Israelis a massive ordnance penetrator and lease them to B2 so they could carry it. The Iranians might not take what we say seriously, but if they know the Israelis have that capability, they'll take that seriously. Again, what I'm suggesting is you've got to, you have to have a, a multiplicity of instruments that you're using here that are designed to convey to the Iranians that their nuclear infrastructure is going to be put at risk. Ellie, so back to you now. So on one hand, there seems to be this gap. On one hand, the good news is, is that, uh, you know, uh, the United States and Israel are playing nicely in the sandbox uh, so far. It's not like 2015, where things got really out in the public sphere and got very kind of confrontational and very rancorous. But you've got a policy gap now where Israel thinks this a baseline deal is not going to lead to the follow on deal, the longer and stronger, like you articulated. You see it as a leap of faith, basically, that there is going to be this follow-on deal. I think that Israel understands that it has inherent limitations and that the U.S. has all kinds of leverage points on the Israel. So it has to, um, for the moment, prepare its options, exercise discretion in terms of what means it does apply, which the U.S. may not like but would not uh, vociferously disapprove and pray for a better day. So I think that the, uh, the Israelis are smart enough to understand that they can stretch American-Israeli relations up to a point, but not beyond it. And so uh, the, the situation now is probably the worst of all worlds because the agreement was poorly implemented even before Trump pulled out of it. 
and key elements of the agreements were never implemented. Iran, for example, never uh, implemented the conversion of some facilities. The uh, uh, arrangements designed to verify uh, Iran's weaponization activity were never implemented. Iran was denying access to the IEA, lying repeatedly on discovering of the IEA and so on. Israel has taken upon itself to check Iranian influence in its immediate vicinity, which stretches all the way from the Syrian-Iraqi border to Lebanon, and occasionally, presumably also around Yemen, uh, the things that are a direct threat to Israel, and has been selectively, uh, again, one can believe, doing some activities in Iran to try and check the Iranian nuclear progress. And now it's actually waiting to see whether the United States is serious in its commitment about trying to stop Iran. By the way, let me say that the reason I'm skeptical about the follow-up agreement is because I'm also skeptical that we will get the full implementation of the JCPOA as it was signed. But even more so because I think the Iranians are not only, as Ray had suggested, a kind of have self-immunity against even harsher sanctions and do not believe that the U.S. actually means a military action, and perhaps mistakenly so, but even more so because the Iranians are afraid of actually implementing the thing that the U.S. can offer most, which is turn Iran into an economic haven. Ellie, let's, I'm, I'm assuming we're going to be back in the JCPOA in 2021. Okay, I, that's what I assume. Now that means you still have nine years before you get to 2030. Yeah, there's, you know, you have 2023, you have 2025, but the most fundamental sunset provisions are 2030. So if you have nine years, what is it that Israel and the United States can do together that addresses your concern? So three things, and I will build on your earlier point, Dennis, because I think it's, it's a key. The first is, what does the United States mean by going back to the JCPOA? When the White House released a fact sheet of what the JCPOA consisted of in 2015, it had Section T implementation of weaponization activity. It had the broader conclusion on verifying Iran's peaceful intention. It had limitations through the UN Security Council missile, dual capable missile development. None of these were implemented. And it had the conversion of the facilities which did not occur. So question number one is, if the US is serious, the U.S. should go back to JCPOA, which I would support, and give some sanctions relief in that context for the JCPOA as it was signed, not as it was implemented, even before 2018. Point two, the point that you had made about the threshold, Iran as a threshold state. At the time, the leading up to the JCPOA, the United States instilled in Iranian minds what threshold meant and did not mean. They built on Bibi's original statement on terms of the quantity of rich uranium at 20% level. That was a huge thing. And the reason the parts of the JCPOA that have not been implemented are so instrumental is because the threshold has to be defined around both development of the weapons as well as develop of enriching the material and improving the capacity to enrich that material quickly. The JCPOA wasn't perfect, but its implementation was deeply flawed. Let me ask one last question uh, to each of you, which is because this is what our listeners see is in the media. They don't always know the finer details of what's going on in Vienna and the negotiations. 
but they do read in the newspapers about different acts of sabotage that have been attributed to Israel. And I'm not asking anyone to confirm um, this per se, but the perception of Israel's role, whether it's going after a key Iranian scientist, whether it's uh, hitting uh, the electricity in Natan, so the centrifuges um, uh, do not spin. Um, I'm just curious what you feel in the big picture of the nuclear negotiations is this rule of sabotage? Is it a signal to Iran that Israel will not permit Iran to be a nuclear power and therefore will retain its independent capabilities no matter what's in the JCPOA? And whether there's a 1.0 or a 2.0, maybe, Ray, I'll start with you and how it's being, you think, interpreted in, inside Iran. It is often suggested by those who believe in the regime's durability that it possesses formidable security services. In 1972, Richard Nixon visited Iran, and four bombs went off during his visit. Somebody in the United States government should have said, maybe the security services aren't as proficient, resilient, omnipresent as we thought. I would say that the fact that Israelis seemingly can penetrate Iran, land in the middle of daytime, whack a couple of scientists, steal national archives, at least leads me to believe that the principal pillar of the regime that has spaces, that has forfeited all other forms of legitimacy, and its principal pillar being security services, maybe those security services are not as formidable as proponents of the longevity of the regime. Very interesting. Ellie, what do you think? Let me say the following. Between 2003 in 2015, before there was any diplomatic agreement, and certainly before the JCPOA was in place, what has kept Iran from developing nuclear weapons was not the, level, the absence of ambition. It was a concerted effort in which sanctions played only a secondary role. The primary role was played by trying to instill in the, in the Iranian leaders' minds the risk involved in proceeding in the direction that Iran has pursued prior to 2003, which was actually working intensely on developing a nuclear weapons, Manhattan program style, and so on. And what has, has performed that function was mostly the covert action coupled with the threat of military action. And the way it accomplished it was very simple. It communicated the Iranians, A, that they are very deeply penetrated and they can't keep a secret that they're actually moving in that direction. It convinced them that there are surprises that they are yet to encounter if they did proceed on the technical level. And furthermore, they convinced them that there are people who care enough to go through these operations to try and stop them and, and that they demonstrate to them that if they go any further, they would actually use even more coercive means. Those functions were a lot more important than the actual time bought by the disruptive activity. Dennis? Okay, so we want to play on their understanding of what the costs are going to be. We're going to continue to raise the price to them. There's a, there's a range of steps that we can take. I mean, one thing that I would know that echoes Elliot and maybe takes a step further I have been in favor of, of the U.S. coming out 
and publicly being supportive, without saying who's doing it, publicly supportive of the strikes that are taking place in Syria, that are disrupting the precision-guided project that the Iranians are pursuing. We should be in a position where the Iranians understand we've defined what we're going to, we're prepared to live with. We should be very clear and private with them about what we can accept and what we can't accept. And then we should continue to support the full range of measures that make it clear to them as they proceed doing things they shouldn't do, we will, A, as Ellie was suggesting, we will expose it. This is exactly, by the way, what we did in 2009 and when we revealed Fordo. Publicly, we should be ambiguous in some cases. In other cases, we should be supportive uh, because the Iranians are doing things they shouldn't do, and when they do that, they're going to pay a price for it. Can I just finish with one sentence? The problem with the, the, problem with the JCPOA is the JCPOA. The Iranians can very much develop all the capabilities required while adhering to the agreement. They have transformed the illicit program into a perfectly legal one. And every negotiation that takes place about Iranian nuclear program now, even by President Khatami, will be in the context of the JCPOA. We are operation conceptually in the following position. Live with it or use military force against it. We're conceptually there. We're not operationally there. And what we're trying to do is to pretend we're not conceptually there by all other things that have been talked about. The JCPOA was the most permissive arms control agreement in history, as is acknowledged by its architects. I want to make one point. The U.S. negotiated the JPOA, the interim agreement, and then we're going to negotiate the JCPOA. The JPOA laid out principles that the Obama administration believed in, which were infinitely superior to the ones that ultimately were negotiated in the JCPOA. Parts of the JCPOA elapse over time. The JPOA established principles that one should go back to as the cornerstone of the policy the U.S. pursues. So I would think that the best thing that could happen between now and eternity is that the U.S. ultimately adopts as a policy the cornerstones of the JPOA that was agreed with Iran at the time. I think that going forward, because there are going to be so many difficulties with whatever is being accomplished in the negotiations in Vienna, is that the U.S. should take the liberty that is taken in so many areas between administrations to change the formulation, some formulations of its policy. One day it's part of the Paris Climate Agreement, the other day it's not, and then it goes back to the Climate Agreement and so on. It should go back to upholding the policy that was anchored by the, the Democratic administration in 2013. That's a fascinating point, Ellie, and it's something that is overlooked a lot in our discussion, that sometimes in these earlier agreements, there are principles here that people need to be reminded of. And I want to thank all three of you, Ellie, Ray, Dennis, for a really lively exchange uh, about this issue and about the contours going forward. This issue is obviously not going away, and I hope on this podcast we'll be able to revisit it soon again. Thank you all very, very much. So I think we heard here a, a very lively exchange between three really leading analysts who, who focus on this issue. Ray, who's really steeped in, 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 in Iran's contemporary history, 
uh, and policy. Both Eli Levita, who's probably Israel's leading expert on the nuclear negotiations, and Dennis, who really has a finger on the pulse on, on American policy for a long time regarding the Iranian uh, negotiation issue. And we, we, I think we heard a range of views about all of them agreed that, that they felt that JCPOA in and of itself was insufficient. And that's Biden's view, too, that you need something longer and stronger. The difference is, do you believe that there can be a follow-on agreement? Yes or no? What does American leverage need to be? And I thought what was fascinating is that they all thought that there was this whole gray zone, if you will, between the diplomacy and a final kinetic action, an action of hitting the Iranian program. But there was maybe a range of things you could do that were keeping with the letter of JCPOA, but also fell short of an attack on Iran's nuclear forces. Uh, so I think that it's that gray zone where people will, will debate, and that will also be, can there be a follow-on deal or not? There, were, there, was, there was skepticism here. Dennis didn't want to close the door. Others were very skeptical. And I think the Biden administration that puts forward the longer and stronger approach they need to fill that headline, so to speak, with a real set of policies on this is why, what longer and stronger means. This is what an Iranian nuclear threshold state means. This is what we in the U.S. cannot permit. And this is our leverage to get to that follow-on deal. So I, I look at this podcast as, as something for the administration to really say, okay, this is what we mean by it. This is not a slogan. This is our policy, and this is our economic and other forms of leverage to get there. I think until the administration makes its point, that skepticism is going to continue. And the tensions between the U.S. and Iran, I do, do not think will fade unless there's greater sense of clarity about the trajectory of Washington and Tehran about the future. So... Stay tuned. This is a subject that we will come back to, I am sure. And I want to thank you all very much for listening and thank our really distinguished guests. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you join us for all of season three. Please go to your favorite podcast app to rate, review, and subscribe to Decision Points. And tell your friends. I also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible, our coordinator, Sheridan Cole, and our researcher, Alex Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute. And finally, Richard Myron, and Lindsay Riley, our production team at Earshot Strategies. Thank you all.